And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here on the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And today we're going uh, across uh, Jersey and Pennsylvania all the way out to Pittsburgh to uh, talk to an opponent of the Dodgers at the time, but somebody who did experience National League Baseball in New York, and that is the original Frank Thomas. Welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, Frank. Thank you. You're quite welcome. So what I would love for you to start with, before we get into any of the machinations of your career as well as your interactions in Brooklyn, I want you just to start from the beginning and tell everybody uh, of your your, uh, personal history and your personal baseball history. Well, it all started when I left um, eighth grade and one of the priests asked me to go to Mount Carmel up in Niagara Falls for the summer months. And he thought that it would be nice for me to go up there. Maybe I would think about becoming a priest. Well, when I was up there, everything went well. I, I played all the sports up there. Uh, baseball, they wouldn't let me pitch because I threw too hard. They wouldn't let me hit because I hit the ball too far. And so I decided that uh, I will spend my my high school days in the seminary, okay, and I'll give it some good thought. And then uh, uh, when I was in my novitiate, okay, I had my habit. I was going to be Father Godfrey. And it started to hit me that uh, this wasn't what I wanted to do. I mean, all I wanted to do was play baseball. And this all happened when I was – Actually, five years old, I thought this because my Uncle Mike used to catch with me, and I used to tell him, I said, Uncle Mike, I want to become a major league ball player. And I was only five years old, like I said. And, but, I, but I went to the seminary and spent my novitiate there, and then finally, about half of the year of the seminary gone, I wrote a letter to my mother. One of the seminarians was going home to have an operation in Pittsburgh, and I gave her the letter. Now, we're not, we weren't supposed to do that because that was a law, <laughs> but I broke the law and because I wanted my mother to know that I was going to leave the seminary, and I wanted her to be the first to know it. <clears throat> and it so happened when he gave her the letter, and she went back home, and she started crying, and my dad says, what's the matter? And she wouldn't say anything. So finally, my dad put two and two together because she had just gone to see the kid. And he wrote a letter to the uh, director and said that uh, he'd like to know what was going on. And in the meantime, I was doubting the vocation. And the priest would ask me, you sure you want to go home? And I said, yes. And he said, well, why don't you go downstairs and uh, go to the chapel and pray a little to make sure you're doing the right thing which I did, and then the next day he he said the same thing to me, and I went back down again. And after the third day, as I was cleaning the steps, which was my job, he he said, you sure want to go? And then he handed me the letter from my dad. Well, I felt kind of embarrassed because uh, I I wasn't supposed to send the letter back. So I said to him, I says, yes, Father, I'm doubting my vocation. I want to go home. And I want to become a major league ball player. And that's how that all started. Now, 
two different clubs, but but in that time, there was no draft, so you could sign with any club that would contact you. So the Pirates were interested in me, and so was the Cleveland Indians. George Soucy, who caught for the uh, bullpen catcher for the Cleveland Indians, uh, and his son and I were very good friends. We only lived right up the street from each other. And he asked me if I would go to, to Cleveland and, and work out, which I did. And he, he came home and uh, with me, and he talked to my dad, and you know, he wanted me to sign. But in the meantime, Pittsburgh was still interested in me. So I went out and I talked to Fred Haney, and Fred Haney said, yeah, he would like to sign me. And he offered it, uh, me a, a certain amount of money. My dad said, no, that's not enough. And uh, so then I went back to Cleveland, and Dickard with Cleveland, and Cleveland says, well, we'll come, we'll come up with some more money. In the meantime, my dad was talking to Roy Hamey, and he said, so Roy Hamey said, well, we'll give you $3,100 because I said, if you give me enough money to pay my mom's, my mom and dad's um, uh, on their house, you know, pay it off, and then I will sign. So my dad said, well, that's okay. So I went and I signed with the Pirates. And Roy Hemi said, he talked to a priest, and the priest used to say to him, well, we won't see him play at Forest Field, you know, all his fans and kids that he went to school with and everything. So finally we did sign. That was in 1948, but I didn't go away until 1949 because half the season was over. And I felt that if I would have gone there and, uh, I would have been struggling, okay, because the, the players and the pitchers were, were far ahead, and me starting out like that would be kind of tough on me. So I waited till the following year in 1949 but I went, before I went to spring training, and that's where it all started, okay? And I went to Indianapolis. Well, first I went to Texarkana, Texas, uh, the Indianapolis Indians, and uh, Cleveland at that time. And uh, they wanted me to sign, okay, but I, I, I told them I were already signed with the Pirates. And uh, we just uh, went there, and uh, I, I had a rough start. And the general manager of the uh, of the ball club, the Tuxedo, says, who is this kid, you know? And Al Lopez was a, was a manager there. Uh, and he said, well, that's Frank Thomas, a kid from Pittsburgh. And then I started hitting the ball out of the ballpark with, with authority. And that's when he asked again, who is this kid? He says, he's got a lot of power. And uh, that's where it all started. And I went from uh, Texarkana, Texas. And, and my first year with Pittsburgh was in Tallahassee, Florida. Okay. And I, I led the league and, and runs battered in. Uh, I only I I think. 14 home runs at that particular time. But uh, things worked out. My first manager was Jack Rothrock, and I remember the first thing that he told me. He says, Frank, he says, you will not get to the major leagues walking. He says, you just swing the bat. And I believed in that because my whole career, I never struck out 100 times in a season, whether in the minor leagues or the major leagues. Today they're striking out more strikeouts than our base hits, uh, and, and it's a different yeah. world out there today than, than it was back then. And then from Tallahassee, Florida, they sent me to um, 
a triple a double A no farm club, I guess it would be in uh, Ottawa, okay. And then I was going pretty good there. And then he called me up again and says, we're sending you to Waco, Texas. Um, I'm playing in Waco, Texas, playing center field, hitting the ball with authority. And then the next thing I know, we're having a meeting. And uh, Buddy Hankin, who was the manager, said, I want to see you uh, after the meeting is over. And I stayed. And he says, the Pirates want you to go back to Tallahassee, Florida. And I says, you know, you just got done talking, saying every boy should have that desire to go higher. And here you are telling me, no, I'm going to go back to <laughs> to D-ball instead of staying in B-ball. He says, that's being, you know, going backwards. And I said, if, if baseball is going to be that way, I says, I don't want to have any parts of it. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to go home and, and forget about baseball. Well, in the meantime, I was – uh, going with a girl, and she kind of talked me in. So I went back to Tallahassee, Florida. I was the boyhood king, you know, king the year before, and they thought if I went there that I would help the ball club, you know, win some ball games, which I did. And then the following year, they sent me to spring training in, in uh, California, and I stayed with J- Jack Rothrock and his wife in spring training. And then we were coming north, and they were playing the exhibition games. And I got to play in, in New Orleans. And the next thing I know, Les Biederman, the writer for the Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh Press, said to me, he says, well, he says, you're not staying here. He says, you're going back to Tallahassee, Florida. I said, no, I'm not. I said, I'm staying here. He said, no, I'm afraid not. So they sent me back to um, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, okay, and Rip Sewell was my manager there. Now, Rip saw me play, and he said that I want to change your stance. He says, you, you're a power hitter because when I went into baseball, first of all, I hit everything to right field, right center, and dead center. I never pulled the ball. He says, I want you to move closer to the plate because you're a power hitter, and I want you to just swing from your fanny. Okay, and I did. And I became a power hitter where I couldn't hit a ball to center field or hitting the ball to right center or or right field. And that's where it all started with Charleston. And then the following year, I went to spring training with uh, the Pirates in San Bernardino, California again. And then we come north in New Orleans. Uh, uh, I said, I'm going back. To, I'm going to New Orleans this year. And I didn't say anything. I just felt, well, that's higher than a ball. So I went to New Orleans, and then I had a great year in New Orleans, and that was in 1950-51. And then in 1952, they sent me back to New Orleans again, okay? And I kind of balked at that. But then I decided, well, gee, I might as well go there. And then I'll prove to them that they're making a mistake by not letting me stay with the big club. I ended up with 35 home runs, led the league in runs batted in, um, made the all-star team. And then finally, about the season was over, and they called me up for Pittsburgh. And I played something like 50 – I went to about, I think, 51 times in 1951 with the Pirates. And then finally in 1953, I got my start to play with the Pirates because they sold Ralph Kinder. 
I remember my first game in center field and Ralph was playing left field and the ball was hitting left center and he says, go get it, kid. <laughs> and <laughs> it was, you know, one of those things that uh, I felt that this is what I was supposed to do. And I remember Jack Rossbach telling me also, he says, all you have to do is an outfielder. He says, go catch his pitcher's mistakes. And when you get the ball, you hit the cutoff man. That's all you have to do. And I believe that. And that's what the players don't do today. I mean, they throw over the cutoff man's head and, you know, and the guy gets an extra base hit because of that. But that's where my career all started. And, and I spent eight years with the Pirates in their organization. And and then I got traded to uh, to Cincinnati in the big trade for Hoke, Haddocks, and Burgess. And there was Pendleton, Whammy Douglas, and Johnny Power from the Pirates going to Cincinnati along with me. But I was the main one. And that's the story of my career right from the beginning, Sam. And uh, you can take it from there. Well, it, there's so many great directions to go, but but interesting looking at your baseball reference page, I see that you went to school on uh, the Ontario side of Niagara Falls. So I, I was curious if you could go a little bit into your your um, your high school area. What what brought you up into Canada? What brought me there? What brought me there? Yes. Well, there was the priest that asked me to go there, okay, and and in the summer months, okay, and and I liked it. I liked the atmosphere and the climate and everything, and and but I, I didn't like the winter because it was very cold because it's right across away from the you know Niagara Falls. But uh, I spent my four years there, and if you ask me, you know what subjects I took, I I, I took uh, French, I took German, I took Latin. Okay, I I took plain and, and solid geometry. And if you ask me any of the questions about what the, uh, if I knew anything about that, I'd have to say no. <laughs> I, I really don't remember any of that stuff. I'll tell you. And I, and no, I the only say, the, you know, the only geometry me when I go out to work. Okay? The only geometry. Uh, breeze. But the only that, geometry they were just trying you know. to make you, you make you intelligent, so you'd be able to answer kind of questions and be able to do a lot of things that uh, you were supposed to do. And that was the whole thing as far as my, my, my trip in, in Canada. And uh, well, uh, what, what I wish it was to... in New Baltimore, which was right off the Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania Turnpike. And that's when I left this the seminary. Well, what's interesting, like thinking about it, it just because uh, recently from some of the angles that some of the outfielders took, in the Mets game this weekend, we were saying that they needed they needed to go back to geometry class and figure out, uh, uh, you know, get get a protractor out there again. Uh, so the the only math that you knew how to do was was uh, uh, batting averages and and baseball math basically. That and and you going speak with, a little louder, Sam. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. So, uh, but so going into your career. That first year, you had 30 home runs and 102 runs batted in 1953. That's correct. What do That's you remember still about today. what do you remember about 1953 as it pertains to the Dodgers? The Dodgers, of course, won the pennant that year, uh, and this is your first full season. So, what what are some of your memories of the Brooklyn Dodgers and going into Ebbets Field in particular? Well, to be honest with you, you know, I hit very well against the Dodgers. I hit very well against the Giants. In fact, I hit something like 52 home runs against the Dodgers pitching, okay? And Carl Erskine was one of them. 
And I remember when I was playing in Pittsburgh against the Dodgers and Erskine was pitching and he hit, he threw me 17 curveballs. Okay. And I fouled them all off. And finally, I guess he figured, well, I got him now. So I'm going to throw a fastball by him and I hit it out of the ballpark. I was going to tease him on on the show if if he was going to be on with me about that. But he came into the clubhouse after the game. He says, don't you look for anything but a fastball? I says, that's right. That's the only thing I look for. I can always adjust to any other pitch. But uh, I had great days against the Dodgers. I enjoyed playing in Evans Field. It was a good ballpark for me to hit. Okay, and the Polo Grounds was also a good ballpark for me to hit because I was strictly a pool hitter. Right, of course. And um, so let's let's talk Branch Rickey. By 1953, Branch Rickey is uh, head of, of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And, and um, I, I can't hear you, Sam. Hey, uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. So by 1953, Branch Rickey is over with the Pittsburgh Pirates. And at, at first, when you think about the fact that you both are men of faith, you'd think that would bring you together. Uh, but but I, I know that on our Mets podcast, you had an interesting story about uh, interactions with Branch Rickey. Well, yes. You know, I had the great year in 53. Okay. So I went and talked contract to him because back then we didn't have any agents. You know, we, 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 we went in to ourselves to the uh, general managers, okay? And I went in to talk to him, and he says, you had a great year? And I says, yes. And uh, he, he said, <laughs> well, I told him, I says, you know, when he asked me what I wanted, I said, I want $15,000. And he said to me, he said, son, he says, you go along with me on $12,500. He said, and you have another great year, I'll be more than happy to take care of you. I said, well, that's fine. That's like going to confession, or in other words, and you double your salary. So I signed for $12,500. I got, you know, I got a, a nice raise, $7,500, or $7,500 raise. Okay, the next year, I had another good year where I hit over 2,501s, and I walked in a talk contract with him, and uh, what do you think he offered me? He offered me the difference on what I'd asked for the year before, 15000 And I said, no. I said, I'm a better ball player than that, and I want paid accordingly, and I want $25,000. So now uh, he went to Florida, the twig was in Pittsburgh, and I was in Pittsburgh. And I'm listening to a radio on Sunday afternoon, and it shut right across the screen. If Thomas doesn't sign for twenty, if Thomas doesn't get twenty-five thousand dollars, he will not sign. And I just said to myself, you know, Ricky always said that he never divulges anybody's salary negotiations. And I said he's lying. I said because he's the only one in Florida that knew what I had asked for. The twig was in Pittsburgh, who, who I'm dickering with, and. I'm the one in Pittsburgh who's dickering with Twig. So finally, I held out for 17 days. But prior to that, the, the old man came by from Pittsburgh. Now, in the meantime, um, my dad used to go to church, and Chili Doyle, who wrote for the Sun-Telegraph, always used to ask my dad, you know, how's Frank doing? My dad would tell him, and he'd put an article in the paper. Now, when uh, when I wasn't getting anywhere with the twig, I says, um, is Dad coming home? And he says, yeah. I says, well, why don't you make an appointment? He says, I don't think Dad wants to talk to you. I said, well, I think you ought to give me that courtesy. 
So the dad did come home, and I, he set up an appointment with me. I walked into his office. I walked behind him. He sat down at his desk, and all the papers on his desk, he just wiped them off with both hands. He said, do you negotiate with the newspapers? I'll read the newspapers, and that's how we'll do our negotiations. And after he was finished, I said to him, Mr. Ricky, I had nothing to do with what was in the paper. I said, my dad's interested in me the same as you're interested in your son. And I walked out. And I held out for 17 days. Now, I'm not getting anywhere with the twig, you know. And finally, he says, well, I'll up your salary to $8,000, which was $7,000 less than what I asked for. And I wasn't happy. And I told Twig, I said, if you want an unhappy ball player, I said, you're going to get one. I said, but I'm not that type of player. I'll go out and I'll give 100% because I love the game of baseball, which I did. But in the meantime, I, I went to spring training, and I'm walking into the, into the uh, hotel, and the old man, Ricky, is walking towards me and never said a word to me, never said hello, how are you, and he welcomed you back or anything like that. I get to the ballpark, and Fred Haney was the manager, and I'm in the lineup. Now, mind, I'm 17 days, you know, I've been working out at home. I mean, I wasn't a fool, you know, so I worked out at home, and I was prepared. I said, but, you know, facing pitching was altogether different than just taking batting practice at home. So finally, uh, I'm in the ball game. We're playing the Yankees, and Ryan Dorn's pitching. The first time I come up, I hit a ball out of the ballpark for a home run. Next time I come up, I bunt it for a base hit and beat it out. And then he took me out of the lineup. And then about a week and a half later, I catch the flu. And for two and a half weeks, I lost 17 and a half pounds. And I threw up in front of Fred Haney. And he says, you've been sick? I said, yes, I have. I said, hasn't the trainer told you? Because he knew I was sick, throwing up every day. He says, no. So he says, well, I'm not going to play you. And But the old man made me made <laughs> Fred Haney played me, okay, and I continued to lose weight, and I didn't do very well at the beginning. Finally, we get into Cincinnati towards the end of the season, and he's in the old man's in Cincinnati, and he called me up and said, I want to see you up in my room. I went up to his room, I knocked on the door, walked in, and he says, Frank, I'm, I've been hearing the writers and everybody saying it's because of me that you're having the type of year that you're having. I said, well, uh, that's beside the point. I says, neither here nor there. I says, it's just one of those unfortunate things that happened when I was sick and you made me play. And don't say you didn't because I'm going to call you a liar, okay? And you say <laughs> you don't go to games on Sunday, and I'm going to call you a liar for that because you do do that. And he never answered me back. But he said to me, I'm going to retire, and probably one of the first to know he was going to retire. He said, but I'm going to tell whoever's taking my job that we will not cut your salary. I said, Mr. Ricky, I don't want anything from you, okay? And I walked out. Now, hmm. the season ended, and contract time came up, and he had retired, and Joe Brown became a general manager. And when I had contract with Joe, he says, well, Mr. Ricky said I shouldn't, I'm not supposed to cut your salary, Okay, he said, but I'm going to give you a $1,000 raise. I says, Joe, if you do that, that's up to you. I'm not asking you to do anything. Okay, I said, but I have another, if I have another good year, 
and you throw that up to me that you gave me a thousand dollars, I'm going to go to the bank, get a thousand dollars out, and give you a thousand dollars back, and we'll negotiate for two years. And that's the story with my story with the old man, Ricky. It's it's really amazing, and all the different layers that come with the the man. Like you just just thinking about those Sunday games too, and and that was always such a big deal. At some point, you know, early early on in baseball, they didn't play on Sunday at all. And of course, a lot of owners. Well, you know, he was always the type of man. You know, he did everything for himself. I mean, he he didn't bring Willie Mays in to break the color barrier. He brought him up to, to, to make himself look good, okay? Which was a good thing because Willie was a great ball player, okay? I'm not taking anything away from him because of that. But Jack, when, I would Jackie, talk, when I would talk contract with him, Jackie, he, right? would, he would say to me, you know, you did this, you did this, you did that, you did this. But you didn't do this, you didn't do that, you didn't do this, and you didn't do that. It was always negative okay nothing was positive for him you know to 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 cheer you up and and bring you up and stuff like that which was ridiculous Hmm. i just i wanted you meant uh jackie robinson right jackie robinson was a great ball player i'll tell you it's a shame that he died uh, you know as young as he did he was always nice to me and i respected him and uh you know, he was a good ball player, and and he, you know, he didn't, uh, you know, say anything about like the troubles we have today. Okay, Frank, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, um, yeah, no, it it's. I I think a lot of people can learn a lot about what's going on today through a lot of things that Jackie had to say, and so I I implore everybody to to go out there and read that. Uh, Frank, I I want to go uh, to the year before uh, the one that you were talking about when it comes to Branch Rickey. You got hit uh, in 1954. You got hit 10 times. That, and, and, and the only other time I see you got hit seven times once, eight times once. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Did, did that have something to do with the year you had before as a rookie? Well, you know, uh, pitchers, I'll give an example. Bob Gibson. Okay, great pitcher for the Cardinals. Uh, he'd go to the, the bat dinner in New York, and, and people would ask questions, and they say to him, you know, you were uh, notorious for, for hitting batters. He says, no. He said, the inside part of the plate is mine, and the rest of the plate is yours. If you could hit, you're, you're hitting yourself. That was his theory, okay? Well, I stood on top of the plate, and I knew that eventually they're going to put you inside, and they're going to hit twice. Well, I got hit uh, twice in one game, in one inning, actually. After we batted around, I got twice hit twice in the same <laughs> inning. And uh, I was probably the second ball player that ever did that. The first one that, that, that happened to was, was George Smith, the pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds. You, you, and that year you batted 298. So you certainly had the, the plates, uh, uh, 23 home runs, 94 RBIs. Right. Um, and it, it's nice, you know, your batting average went up that year, even if right. you, your home home runs and RBIs went down. Well, you know, baseball is funny, Sam. You know, you can go up and down. You have a good year one year, you have a bad year, okay. But you try to stay to, to have a, a solid year no matter what year it is, okay. But like I say, you know, it's 162 games, you've got to be – 
you got to be up for 162 games. you got to be in pretty good shape. That's for tour. sure. That's for sure. And, and you know, when especially all those train travels uh, uh, back then on, on the road. What, uh, what do you remember about uh, uh, the Brooklyn fans? What do you remember of, uh, about great, being in Brooklyn? Great, great, great Brooklyn fans. And, uh, and, the, and the announcer, okay, you know, Vinny was always great, okay? Uh, I had great respect for the Dodger team. Um, they, had, they had good ball players. I, I, I liked Pee Wee Reese. He respected me. When I get to second base, he'd always talk nice to me. Okay. I saw him after the, the bat dinners and stuff like that, you know, and we'd have conversations. And uh, the ball players in my time were pretty good ball players. In other words, they're not like the players of today. Okay. We played the game because we loved the game. I mean, they're playing the game today because they want the money. Mm. That's that's a very interesting observation. I mean, it, it's hard to you you don't necessarily see. And I've I've talked to some people uh, uh, about this in terms of the knowing the history. It seems as if players used to really understand baseball history, where as it, it kind of now it's just what they've played. They, they they really haven't watched baseball as much as the the old ball players used to do, and and it and and whether or not it, just, the passion for the game doesn't seem to be there, like you said, and, and I'm not sure if it's just the money or what, but I I think you're you're correct, and in, in, in a, it, it's a very nuanced conversation. I'd love to talk to a, a, a ball player about it. Have another ball player that that's currently active on here about that. What was that, Sam? Oh no! I, I was just saying that it would be interesting to get a perspective of a current ball player uh, in the conversation about what where the passion lies right now. It would probably be baseball. a lot different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder about the players. You know, they don't they don't sign autographs for the kids and stuff like that, and I I, I think it's wrong because I, remember that the fans that come to the ballpark are paying their salaries. Okay, their mothers and dads are bringing the kids. So, you know, be nice to the kids. I mean, I vowed yeah. that, that I would never pass up a kid, okay? And I had the policy that once I got out of the clubhouse, if they lined up, I'd be more than happy to sign until each and every one of them was signed. One day, my, my wife with the, with the eight kids sat in the car for two hours while I signed autographs for the kids in Coors Field. <laughs> What, do you remember any uh, kids approaching you in Brooklyn after a game? Pardon me? Do you remember any children in Brooklyn approaching you after oh, a game? Yeah. I, had, I had a fan club in, in, uh, in Brooklyn. There was five girls, five little girls who were <laughs> 12 and 13 years old. Okay. And, you know, those five girls uh, were, were fans. They invited me to dinner. Okay. And when my family came, they took them to to, uh, to the ballpark. I mean, the World's Fair was there. They took the kids to the World's Fair with my wife and everything like that. I mean, they were great fans, okay, great kids, okay. And, you know, it's it was sad, but five of them all died with cancer. Oh, that's too bad. Well, you know, that's very sad, life. you know. And I remember one of them came to Pittsburgh, and the mother came, you know, and I went to see her. I, I, I felt bad 
that I did go to see her because I I should not go to see her and let her let me remember her the way she was, you know, when she was in Brooklyn. I mean, it was it was sad for me to see that, but I prayed, you know, for her and stuff like that, and she finally passed away. But her mother used to invite me every Sunday to to a uh, a, a spaghetti dinner, okay, in Brooklyn, okay, and. Every time that I went there to, to the dinner the next day, I would hit a home run. <laughs> so, so I, I won a ball game, uh, one to nothing. I beat Sal Magley. Okay, and I got on the uh, uh, the Price is Right, or, uh, and, and one of the shows because the man who was in charge of it was from Pittsburgh, and they had me on. But I didn't answer the main the main question to win my wife was a fur, a fur coat. <laughs> well, that's too bad. Right. <laughs> you but, know. but you know, I had a lot of fun in Brooklyn. Okay, and a lot of fans in Brooklyn. That's great. Okay, and you know, I was always type of the ball player that I was good to the fans, and to this day, I mean, Sam, I'm out of baseball 54 years, and to this day. The, the last month, I'm getting anywhere from six to ten letters per day <laughs> asking for my autograph, okay, and selling my pictures for, for my two charities. Well, it's speaking, amazing of, speaking that, of which, uh, that's, that people are I, doing I want this you to for touch, me. Can you touch on the charities real quick for for our uh, our audience? Excuse me. What was that, Sam? Uh, can you touch on the uh, about the charities for our audience? Yeah, I have two charities. In other words. Both of them, one is uh, Camp Happy Days, Kids Kicking Cancer, and the other one is Courageous Kids, a safe haven for children with cancer. I'm getting a lot of letters from New York, okay, and I, I have a picture. It's a collectible picture where I made baseball history in 1961 when I became the first major league player to ever hit the fourth home run in succession and won inning by a major league ball player. I don't think that record's ever going to be broken. And I sell that picture for $22, which includes the envelope and the, um, the stamps and uh, the, the, the writing that I put on the, on the picture and my true authentic signature. So if you know of anybody that's interested, you can give them my address, give them my phone number because you have that. Okay, I'd be more than happy to take care of them, be more than happy to talk to them. Excellent, and we will certainly get that out on the uh, the social media wonder of our uh, current world. So speaking of Brooklyn fans, speaking of the National League fans, uh, let's talk a bit about, you know, your time in uh, in New York uh, with the Mets. Uh, so what, just from the first uh, uh, time that you heard that you were going to be coming to the uh, – the 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 inaugural uh, National League team. What what are, what are some of your thoughts about the Mets? I was very surprised, Sam, because I was with Milwaukee when I set that record in June, and John McHale, the general manager, came to me and says, "We want to sign you for next year." And I said to him, "John, this is June. I'd be sorry." And I may go bad, and you'll be sorry. I may go good, and I'll be sorry. Okay, but I said, I'll sign before I go home. And two weeks before the season was over, 
He called me in his office. He says, we want to sign you for next year. All right. I said to him, well, before we do any negotiations, I'm going to ask you just one question. What are your intentions for me come 1962? And his answer to me was this. You are going to be our left fielder for 1962. And I then said to him, if you're telling me the truth, okay, you can bring out whatever contract you want me to sign, and I will sign it. I'm not asking for anything, any money or anything like that. I'm leaving it up to you. And that was in September. November, I get a phone call from my wife. I was up hunting, and she said, you just got sold to the Mets. Now, what happened is McHale and Weiss probably worked out a deal saying, if you can sign him before, uh, you know, before I, I say I'm going to take him for the Mets, then that would be great. Well, after I had signed and I called George Weiss and I said, this isn't fair. Look, this isn't fair. And he says, well, I'm sorry. He says, you already signed. I can't help you anything. Now, Weiss is a pop out of Ricky, okay, same same characteristics and everything else. He does the same kind of negotiations, just like McHale, who's a pop out of Ricky, too, okay? And Hausman, also a pop out of Ricky from Cincinnati. So uh, they all work in, in cahoots with each other, and, and it's, it's so bad that, uh, that people will do that, but that's life. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, you see su- such a, a weird way, going all the way back to what I'm researching with uh, Larry McSale and Branch Rickey and the Pete Reeser story. Uh, it, but I, but, it's but, remarkable. You know, Sam, I enjoy myself in New York. When I came to New York, I said, boy, I'm going to make some extra money because, you know, from uh, endorsements and stuff like that. Well, that didn't right. turn out. I think I made something like $2,000 in endorsements. What but, about, like, uh, Rheingold or Schaefer or something? <laughs> you know, I thought that, uh, you know, some of the players like they like, like they did today, like uh, Mark Thornberry went after he left baseball and made, made quite a bit of money with the <laughs> uh, beer commercial. Yeah. I was just talking about those commercials recently. What, what, tell, tell me about some of the players. What, what, what was Marv like? What was Gil like? Talk about the 62 Mets as the, well, the players I, I've are concerned. I always said this, you know, Mark, Mark great. He looked when... Well, uh, you know, he looked like, uh, like he's another going to be another Mickey Mantle until he swung the bat. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well said. Jay, Jay, Jay Hook gave him the uh, the nickname, you know, marvelous Mark. He put it up on his on the uh, you know his locker, and but you know he, he wasn't a bad ball player. Wasn't a bad ball player, but just uh, uh, and the, the Mets at that particular time. You know, we had a good ball club. We scored a lot of runs, all right, but we didn't have a closer and like they have today. You know, we lost 51 games in the 7th, 8th, and ninth innings by one run. And if we had won those 51 games, we'd have been fighting for the pennant. That's right. Pitching, I mean, pitching was tough. You would have, you would have been – uh, not even close to the you know worst team of modern era, uh, just winning half of those games, really. Right, it's, absolutely. It's remarkable. Absolutely. It's remarkable. And and I you know there's we we went down a, a big Mets rabbit hole on the other podcast, but I, I wanted to go back before I forget. 
I wanted to go back and talk about you playing with Roberto Clemente. You were in the outfield uh, with him. And I, you know, at, at the time, it, it was it was a transitioning uh, a transitioning sport and a transitioning country. It, it, what was it like playing with Roberto Clemente? Well, Roberto was a great ball player, but as a ball player, and I'm speaking as a ball player, not as a fan. Okay, he had a great arm. He showed it off. Okay which was great, but he hurt the ball club in many games. And let me give you an example. I'm not taking anything away from him. I used to chew him out and yell at him all the time. Let's say there's a man on second base, the opposing team, and the ball is hit the right field. All right? He charges the ball. He comes up throwing, and I'm the first baseman. He throws the ball over my head to where I can't even jump for the ball, and if, and if the catcher catches the ball and we don't get the runner scoring from second base, what happens? The ball, the guy who hit the ball ends up on second base. Next guy gets a base hit. We lose the ball game. That's the only thing that I used to chew him out with. <laughs> Every other thing, I mean, he was he was great. You know, and he was great for, for people. He had the barrier about, you know, the, uh, the English language and stuff like that. So he had a lot to learn in, in regards to that, but that's the only fault that I felt with him, and I'm speaking as a ball player, not as a fan, because fans like to see that great arm. Right, exactly. <laughs> so what was it like watching uh, the 1960 Pirates win that World Series on another team? Well, it hurt, <laughs> because... I was with him until 1958, and because of my trade, Hoke, Haddock, and Burgess played a big part in the Pirates winning the pennant in 1960. So I just always tell uh, Joe Brown, when am I going to get a ring? I said, because, you know, I helped the Pirates win the pennant that year. But uh, right? yeah. that's yeah, exactly. the way baseball is, you know. And I played 16 and a half years in, minor, minor, in the major leagues, and nine of those six years, nine of those sixteen and a half years were spent in last place. So it wasn't it wasn't easy, but like I always say to people who ask me different questions, ball players have a lot of pride about themselves and they go out each and every day because it's a new game. That's what's so great about the game of baseball. Okay? You play today, you lose today, tomorrow you start fresh, and you can win the next day. And that's all the way I used to look at baseball. If I could go into the clubhouse every day after every game and say to myself while I'm taking off my uniform, I gave 100 and 110%. I didn't care what anybody said, what the writers said, what the fans said, or anything like that. I gave my best to the team. And I like uh, the way you're saying it. You were always on – you know, other, of course, than, than the, uh, the New York Metropolitans. You were, and, and like we said, they very well, uh, just with luck, could have been uh, uh, not spoken the way they, they are now. Um, right. And going back to the 62 Mets, uh, I, I, we have to talk Casey Stengel. Uh, Stengel, of course, played for both the Dodgers and the Giants, and then he, he rounds out uh, being the only one to ever wear all four uniforms at the time, uh, once the Mets were, were created. Tell, talk about Mr. Casey Stengel. What a, what a baseball legend. 
Well, I always say this. <laughs> he probably forgot more baseball than I'll ever know. Uh, <laughs> he, he was a type of manager that tried to get the best out of a ball player. He spoke Sinhalese to the writers, but he spoke like you and I are speaking right now to, to the ball players. Jim Hickman, in, in, uh, for an example, okay, was my roommate, okay, uh, along with Eddie Cranepole, but he would stay close enough to the writer, uh, you know, close enough to Jim Hickman's daughter, okay, and he would try to build up Jim and saying, you know, he, said, he could be a great ball player, could do this and do that and do that, but Jim took it the wrong way. He thought he was criticizing him. And, and it didn't help him. He was that type of player, okay, and God rest his soul. But he went away in, in Chicago and became a terrific ball player, hitting 30, 35 home runs. So Casey knew that he had the potential to be a great ball player, and he wanted to bring it out to him, but it backfired. Yeah, and that's the, the amazing thing. You know, we see Casey out in front uh, doing the character, being the uh, the front man, if you will, and uh, being goofy and talking in all these weird ways, uh, you forget that he had, everybody talks about how he had a very solid way of talking to the ball player. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I played for him every day, so I don't know some of the antics that he did on the bench. There's only one time that I sat next to him it was in the seventh inning. We got a man on first and second, nobody out. And and Solly's down at third base trying to get his attention. I says, Case, Solly's looking for you to give a sign. He says, I know. He wants us to bend. He's bent. He said, but we're not going to do that. We're going to surprise the team. And so <laughs> that was the only time that I knew anything, that he that he did anything for, uh, in, you know, different than, uh, than some other manager. Yeah, that that's that's a good way. You know, he was he was really uh the perfect face for a new franchise and he seemed uh, uh to to just handle that that role perfectly. Um I want to go back to Pittsburgh and I I I'm just kind of curious in terms of you playing for your hometown team. Uh did there did there seem to be more pressure because of that? Well, there always is. You know, when you're a home run hitter, People think you're supposed to hit a home run every time you come to play. I mean, they did that with Kiner, too, you know. And statistics prove that you're only going to hit one out of 10 or one out of 11. And if I had to do it over again, I would not play in my hometown because of that. I was well-liked at Pittsburgh. And when I got traded, I came back home. I got standing ovations. But not while I was here. Okay, because people wanted the impossible for you to do, and it just doesn't work out that way. You do the best you can, being a power hitter. If they'd have left the gardens up for me like they had for Conner, I'd ended up my career with over 500 home runs. Right. <laughs> I that's that's an interesting way of looking at it too. Um, it, 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 so you you think that that's just the big problem with every home run hitter for every home run hitter is just that everybody is always, they, they don't care whether you're hitting, spraying it across the field. They just want to see you pull it down the line every time. Well, then the fans waited till kind of was up in the eighth inning after kind of flat out or something like that. They all left the ballpark. 
And it goes to show you exactly what I'm trying to tell you. You know, you're, you're not going to hit a home run every time you come up. I mean, he was well-liked in Pittsburgh. He had a lot of home runs. He had the gardens, to, you know, which is 35 feet shorter than the 365-foot scoreboard and, and on top of that, and 406 in left center, which I had to hit in, you know, without the gardens. So it makes a big difference for 35, <laughs> 35 feet. Yeah, that is true. I, I'm curious about Forbes Field, speaking of which, and, and uh, the neighborhood around it. What what was Oakland like? That, that seems like that's, that's the neighborhood Forbes Field was in. And, and as somebody from Pittsburgh, uh, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on it. A lot of, lot of great people. Frankie Gustine had a bar there. Okay. The, the, they used to sell hot dogs on, on the corner. They had the paper routes, paper boys selling papers and everything like that. They don't do any of that anymore. Okay. Times have changed, and like every every place else, every every city has the different things that they've had. But Oakland, where I grew up, was a, was a fine place to grow up in. Okay, people were all friendly. You didn't have to lock your doors. Okay, lock your cars or anything like that. You know, people were friendly. Pittsburgh's a great uh, uh, great city to to come visit because the people are very very friendly here. And so did you grow up in the neighborhood of Oakland where the ballpark is? Yeah, five, ten minutes walk in the ballpark. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I used, to, I used to walk in the ballpark. So can you talk of, of uh, I mean, it was 1909 the ballpark was built. So what are some of your childhood memories of going to games? Did, did Were you really uh, uh, one of those knothole gangs, if you will? Oh, yeah, I was there. In fact, the one big memory that I have that I'll never forget Guess who gave me my first two baseballs in in, in Forest Field? <laughs> Take a guess. Honus Wagner. No. <laughs> the, the big catcher from the Homestead Grays. Oh, Josh Gibson? Josh Gibson. Oh, my God. That... I went to the ball game. He hit two home runs over the 457-foot mark. And I asked him for a baseball. He threw me two of them. And the kids started chasing me all over the ballpark because they wanted to take it away from me, and I ran out of the ballpark and ran home. But I wanted to take <laughs> the ball away from me. Oh, my God. So what was, what was your first Negro game like? How old were you when you first went to a Negro ball game? I went to the ball game when I was 10, 11 years old. Oh, my God. And, and was that uh, something that you – did you go to see the Homestead Grays a lot? Yes, I did. And I tell you, there were a lot of great ball players. a lot of great ball players. And, who, who were some other others other than Josh Gibson that you remember? Well, um, I can't remember their names. I him offhand. There was there was a, a, an infielder. Okay, there was a pitcher. Uh, I, I don't know their names, so Sam. To be honest with you, mm. I'm 91 years old. I'm lucky I know my <laughs> own. Name. I, I, it, and it's just remarkable hearing all these different tales, and we so thank you for, for going down that road. What, what, so what, what were your – coming from a, a city uh, and, you know, coming into the league just a little bit after the color barrier was broken, what, what were some of your thoughts as a child and, and coming into baseball in the 40s uh, regarding the, the, uh, the black ball player situation in baseball? I thought nothing of it. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a racist or anything like that. I, I figured that, it, you know, they're my brothers the same as anybody else. Okay. 
there's a different culture, that's for sure. Okay, but you gotta, you know, you gotta bend, you know, and, and do the best you can, and hope that they will do the same thing with you. And I know in my time, this is the way it was. You know, it wasn't like it is today. Okay, and the, the policemen back in my time were great. Okay, but you know they're saying the police were bad. You always got you know bad uh, in, in, a, in a barrel. You, you come up with one or two bad apples. Right, of course, of course, and I'm wondering. You know, it's so interesting that another ball player named Frank Thomas came and and in some ways stole your thunder, if you will. I'm wondering, have you guys ever met? Has there ever been a photo op? Oh yes, I got a picture with him. He stands over top of me, okay, towers over me, okay, and I remember went to a a. A card show, and he was there, and I told him, I said, sign your name so I can read it, okay? And here he was practicing how to write my name. <laughs> but uh, he's, a great, he's a great kid. I still get some uh, bubblegum cards of his that I have to write back to the fan and tell him I can't sign it because it's not of me. And I tell him, write to the Oakland Athletics or the Chicago White Sox. But I always give him permission just to do this. Make sure before you send the card to them, okay, that you ask if he will sign it. He has a, a, a foundation, and I know he charges for that. And uh, so I set the kids straight, and I don't know how many of them wrote to him and got, got the autographs from him. Well, that's good, and, and it, it's uh, it's really it, it's a fun little thing. I, I'm going to have to look up the uh, if there any photos online of you two. Um, and, and here's my last question before we go. And, and it has to do, I, I think that we have to ask you uh, before the next podcast, when we do have a pitcher on, but who is the most, the toughest pitcher you've ever faced without in major doubt, league baseball? Without a doubt, Don Drysdale. With the Brooklyn Dodgers. And how come? Well, he's, he bores in on the right-hand hitter. You know, and I always look for a fastball. Okay, so you're looking for fastball, and all of a sudden he throws a pitch, and it looks like it's going to curve, but it doesn't. It stays inside, and, and it hits you on the wrist, or, or you maybe it breaks at the last minute, and you swing at it. And I struck out probably 31 times against him in my career. But, Sam, I never struck out 100 times in a season, whether it's in the minor leagues or major leagues, because Jack Rothrock told me that you can't get to the major leagues walking, swing the bat, because so many things can happen. Your ball could bounce, take a funny bounce, infinite could mix it, miss it, throw a bat, make an error by throwing a ball, so two players can come together. So if you put the ball in play, you always have a chance. But if you take that third strike, you just turn around and go right back to the bench. Exactly. Uh, I have, you know, I said that was the last question, but one more. Okay. What was it like? You played in the Astrodome, and I believe in the first year of the Astrodome, correct? Yes, I did, 1965. What was that like? It was tough. Because, <laughs> you know, tough to, to find the ball when it was hit up in the air. Okay. They they darkened the ceiling after that and made it, look, you know, a little bit easier. But, uh it was tough playing in the Astrodome. I mean, you know, but you, you, you do the best you can with what you have. 
Okay, and that's all I could say. I hear that. Uh, Frank, it, it's been remarkable talking to you. And, of course, we're going to uh, uh, try to get you and Carl on the same show sometime, Mr. Carl Erskine of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, I greatly look forward to that, and I thank you for enlightening me today. Well, I appreciate it, Sam. You know, give my, give my uh, pictures a plug. I, for sure, I've, I've actually just been doing so, and, and we're going to do so uh, again on the Bedford and Sullivan Twitter page. And I want to say thank you all for listening today. And thank you all for listening as always. Take care.